Hi, everybody. It's Derek, and this is your Foreign Exchanges World News Roundup for Tuesday, May 30th, 2023. Uh, hope everybody had a nice weekend. Uh, I took a, a long one, as you may know. Uh, at least I hope you missed the newsletter uh, not coming out <laughs> uh, over the last few days. Uh, maybe you didn't, but uh, hopefully you did. Uh, anyway, it was a very nice break, and uh, thanks for indulging me. And let's get right into it. Uh, there are a couple of anniversaries today. On May 30th, 1431, this is the date when the 19-year-old, give or take, Joan of Arc was burned at the stake for heresy. Uh, we talked about this a couple of days ago, but she, of course, helped shepherd uh, Charles VII to the, the French throne uh, in 1429, but was then captured uh, during the Burgundian siege of Compiègne uh, in May 1430. The Burgundians transferred her to English custody in an, a, uh, I would say, somewhat trumped up trial for heresy. Uh, despite a copious lack of evidence, she was convicted nevertheless uh, and sentenced to be executed. Uh, also on May 30th, 1913, the Treaty of London brought the First Balkan War to an end. The victorious Balkan League and the Great Powers, uh, which in this case means Austria-Hungary, Britain, Germany, Italy, and Russia, dictated the terms of the treaty, which gave the island of Crete to Greece and ceded every remaining Ottoman European territory to the Balkan League, except for the European environs of Istanbul and the territory of an independent Albanian state whose exact borders were to be determined by the aforementioned great powers. Uh, the treaty has the distinction of satisfying almost none of the belligerents. The Ottomans were obviously unhappy because they lost the war. Uh, the boundaries of the new Albania angered Greeks in the southern part of the new country and angered Albanians because th those borders left out roughly half of the predominantly Albanian territories in the Ottoman Empire. Uh, you can view the ongoing dispute over Kosovo, uh, which we'll talk about in a minute here, as a legacy of these borders to some extent. Uh, and the Balkan League then quickly fell to discord over how to split up formerly Ottoman Macedonia. That discord led to the Second Balkan War, which began in June and pitted Bulgaria against the other Balkan League members who, interestingly enough, had some Ottoman support in that conflict. Uh, and then the Second Balkan War really just rolled right into uh, the First World War. It's all a big, uh, wonderful tapestry of events there uh, in that region. On to the news in the Middle East. In Syria, the U.S. Treasury Department on Tuesday blacklisted two Syrian financial services firms, Al-Fadl Exchange and Al-Adam Exchange Company. They've allegedly been funneling money to several already sanctioned entities, including Hezbollah, Iran's Quds Force, and the Syrian government. In Turkey, to, assume, to I assume no great surprise given how the first round ended, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan defeated challenger Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu in Sunday's runoff by the relatively comfortable margin of 52.14% to 47.86%, according to an unofficial tally. I've seen some emphasis placed on the fact that this was the first presidential runoff in Turkish history, though the, that's, the significance of that is somewhat undercut by the fact that Turkey only began popularly electing presidents in 2014, so there haven't really isn't really a lot of precedent that you're breaking through there. <clears throat> Erdogan overcame what appears to have been fairly deep ambivalence about his economic record, his response to February's earthquake disaster, the presence of millions of refugees in Turkey, his consolidation of power, any number of issues, to win an election that seems to have turned largely on issues of nationalism. For American Prestige subscribers, Gene Bajalan and I uh, discussed the election earlier today. There's a special that we put out uh, this afternoon. I have a link to it in the uh, written newsletter if you want to check that out. Uh, there's 
less to talk about in the what it's all about vein than if Killer Starlu had won in that what Erdogan's election likely means is that he'll just sort of keep on keeping on. Uh, he's likely going to have to make more of a public effort to emphasize economic recovery to placate a Turkish market that doesn't seem terribly pleased with his victory. The lira declined to uh, another low, apparently, on uh, on Monday, I believe, or Tuesday. Uh, I expect there will be some commentary around the notion that Erdogan no longer needs to posture for nationalist voters so he could soften his approach to, I don't know, take your pick, the Kurds, Greece, NATO expansion, etc., uh, I've seen enough of these Turkish elections to know that Erdogan never really stops posturing, and there's always another election on the horizon. Uh, so I wouldn't expect any major shifts. Erdogan is 69, an age at which it is safe to start wondering whether another election is really on the horizon. Uh, but given that he's already reportedly moving to shut down what little opposition-friendly media Turkey has left, despite having won the election... There is no immediate indication, at least, that he's changing tactics. In Iraq, the Iraqi Supreme Court ruled on Tuesday that the Kurdistan regional government's parliament exceeded its authority last October when it extended its current term for another year. Everything the KRG legislature has done since that election uh, is legally nullified as a result, assuming the KRG doesn't just ignore the ruling, as it has done at times in the past with the Supreme Court. Iraqi Kurdish parties have been unable to reach consensus on a law to govern their next parliamentary election, which right now is tentatively scheduled for November. In Israel-Palestine, Palestinian attackers killed an Israeli civilian near the West Bank Hermesh settlement on Tuesday. Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigade claimed responsibility for the shooting and said that it was intended, quote, to avenge Palestinians killed by Israel, end quote. Uh, that's according to Reuters. In Iran, Iran's IRNA news agency reported on Tuesday that the International Atomic Energy Agency has terminated two of its investigations into Iran's nuclear program. One of those involves the IAEA's discovery earlier this year of trace amounts of uranium enriched to just under 84%, which is very close to weapons grade, at Iran's Fordow enrichment facility. Iranian officials had insisted that those traces were byproducts of the normal enrichment process, and if this report is accurate, then it seems the IAEA hasn't found any evidence to contradict that claim. The second investigation involves the IAEA's discovery of trace amounts of enriched uranium at a facility in the Iranian city of Abadeh. Uh, the IAEA hasn't commented, but it is due to issue another quarterly report on Iran's nuclear program soon, so that should shed some light uh, on uh, this news report. Uh, in Asia and Afghanistan, Afghan and Iranian security forces got themselves into a shootout on the border of western Afghanistan's Nimruz province over the weekend that left at least one Afghan and two Iranian border guards dead. It's unclear what triggered the incident. Each side, unsurprisingly, insisted that the other provoked it. But with the bilateral relationship already tense over the issue of water rights on the Helmand River, any border clash is noteworthy. Uh, the violence prompted Iran to close the Milak-Zaranj border crossing, which is apparently an important commercial outpost, but is not where the shooting took place. In China, protesters and police reportedly clashed in the city of Yuxi on Tuesday over the planned demolition of the Nanjiaying Mosque. Uh, a Chinese court ruled in 2020 that that facility had been built illegally. 
uh, and should be torn down, though the specifics of this particular case aside, uh, it fits a pattern of Chinese authorities either tearing down mosques or refurbishing them to remove overt Islamic characteristics. Much of that activity has, of course, gone on in the Xinjiang region, where there are larger concerns about the treatment of the Uyghur people, but there have been similar cases involving mosques in other parts of the country. Elsewhere, the Wall Street Journal reported on Monday that the Chinese government has refused a request from the Biden administration for the two countries' defense ministers, Lloyd Austin and Li Shangfu, to meet on the sidelines of the Shangri-La Dialogue Defense Forum in Singapore this coming weekend. In their rejection, Chinese officials reportedly questioned the sincerity of the U.S. desire for a meeting. This is being reported as another instance of Beijing standing in the way of better relations with the U.S., but the thing is, the U.S. government has been sanctioning Li since 2018, and the Chinese government has been pretty clear that he won't be available to meet with U.S. officials until his designation is removed. The Biden administration has steadfastly refused to do that. Uh, in North Korea, the North Korean government informed the Japanese Coast Guard and the International Maritime Organization that it was intending to carry out a space launch sometime between uh, tomorrow, Wednesday, uh, and June 11th. Alerts about potential debris were distributed via the Worldwide Navigational Warning System. Uh, Pyongyang is or was really at this point, I'm getting to it, uh, making another of its periodic attempts to put a spy satellite in orbit. I say was because the update to this is that it is looking like the North Koreans did, in fact, carry out their launch early Wednesday morning. Details are still pretty spotty. Uh, South Korean officials are saying the rocket disappeared from radar fairly quickly, which indicates that the launch somehow failed. And now it appears that even North Korean state media is reporting that the rocket failed after its first stage separation. So that would presumably mean uh, an unsuccessful attempt at getting that satellite in orbit. Uh, in Africa and Sudan, the good news is that the Sudanese military and the Rapid Support Forces agreed on Monday to extend their ceasefire, which was to have expired that evening, for at least another five days. The bad news is, you guessed it, they're still fighting through the ceasefire as they have through all of their previous ceasefires. There had been indications of a lull early Tuesday, but a new round of heavy fighting began later in the day uh, in and around Khartoum, with the RSF blaming the military for starting it. Uh, the military, meanwhile, uh, has imposed a curfew in Port Sudan, the main point of entry for all the humanitarian aid that mostly isn't getting to the Sudanese people, although the World Food Program did report some food distribution in Khartoum on Monday, which was a first for the agency since the fighting started in mid-April. The port has thus far been largely spared from the conflict, but if that changes, uh, it could foreclose on even the possibility of any large-scale relief efforts. In Burkina Faso, two apparent jihadist attacks in that country's Boucle du Moon region, which is in the northwestern part of the country, over the weekend left at least 40 people dead, not, not including any deceased attackers. One of those attacks targeted a military convoy, and most of the victims there were members of the paramilitary volunteers for the defense of the homeland unit. Uh, Burkina Bay Prime Minister, and I'm going to butcher his name, I apologize, uh, Apollinaire Kilem de Tambela, told the country's interim parliament on Tuesday that ongoing jihadist violence could force a postponement of next year's planned elections, which I'm sure would be heartbreaking for the country's ruling military junta. In Nigeria, Bola Tinubu officially took office as that country's new president on Monday, promising in his inaugural address to focus on improving the country's economy. 
Early indications are that he intends to follow the standard Western economic playbook, starting with the elimination of a long-standing government fuel subsidy. That decision sent Nigerians racing to their local gas stations to try to stock up before prices spike. The gas stations are likely to start hoarding supply, waiting for the price spike. Uh, so this could become a tense situation uh, without much more prompting. In Cameroon, Boko Haram fighters attacked two towns in the northern part of that country on Tuesday, killing at least eight people in total. Apparently, Cameroonian authorities tracked a large group of fighters that crossed into the country from Nigeria overnight. It's unclear what they're after, although with much of the group's old Nigerian stomping grounds now mostly in Islamic State, West Africa province control, uh, they may be looking for a new area in which to operate. In Somalia, Shabab fighters attacked a military base in that country's uh, Galgodud region on Friday, sparking a battle that has apparently continued through the weekend and has left at least 17 people dead thus far. The base and the town in which it's located are apparently securely in government control, uh, and Somali units have chased fleeing militants into a nearby forest. Uh, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, suspected allied Democratic Forces fighters attacked a town in the eastern DRC's North Kivu province late last week, killing at least 17 people. Authorities were apparently still discovering bodies as of Monday, so the toll may rise further. Uh, in Europe, in Russia, there was a new drone strike on Moscow early Tuesday morning involving eight devices that, according to Russian authorities, were all successfully intercepted either electronically or kinetically. There were reports of damage to a few residential buildings, but no casualties. Unsurprisingly, Russian President Vladimir Putin blamed the Ukrainian government for the strike, calling it, quote, a sign of terrorist activity, end quote, and an attempt, quote, to intimidate Russia, Russian citizens, end quote. This is a real tragedy, considering all the goodwill Russia and Russian citizens have shown to Ukraine and Ukrainian citizens in recent months. Uh, the Ukrainian government issued the same denial it issues after every attack on Russian soil, but whether this incident was directly orchestrated by Kyiv or by one of those Russian militant groups getting support from Kyiv, uh, it all seems like a, a matter of semantics. Uh, also, Ukrainian forces have been shelling the border town of Shebekino in Russia's Belgorod Oblast for a few days now. Belgorod Governor Vyacheslav Gladkov reported more shelling on Wednesday morning that left at least one person wounded. The Russian uh, In Ukraine, the Russian military, for its part, attacked Kyiv on Tuesday morning in a significantly larger drone strike that killed at least one person and wounded another 11. The property destruction was also more severe than in the Moscow incident. Uh, elsewhere, the Wall Street Journal reported Tuesday that the Ukrainian government, in concert with its Western supporters, is planning to hold a quote-unquote peace summit. I put that term in quotes because there's no plan to include Russia, so the subject isn't really going to be peace so much as public relations. The conference would include leaders of what could broadly be considered the non-aligned movement, perhaps uh, countries like Brazil, uh, China, India, Saudi Arabia, uh with the ostensible aim of trying to sell them on Kyiv's proposal for a peace plan. Now, said proposal includes the full Russian withdrawal from territory regarded as Ukrainian, which is a non-starter for Moscow, and the prosecution of war crimes related to the conflict, which is so far out of bounds for the Russians that it doesn't even qualify as a non-starter. The real goal would be to show how reasonable the Ukrainians are being reasonable with a capital R, of course, uh, and thereby win some goodwill among this particular group of nations. 
In Kosovo, at least 30 NATO peacekeepers were injured on Monday in violent clashes sparked by opposition to recently elected local officials in predominantly Serb communities in the northern part of that country. You may recall that the Kosovan government went ahead with local elections in those communities late last month that were boycotted by ethnic Serbs, despite a turnout rate south of 3.5%. That is 3.5, not 35, but 3.5% turnout. Kosovan authorities made the inexplicable decision last week to install the winners of four mayoral races who were, of course, uh, ethnic Albanians since the Serbs didn't vote. That has provoked riots in the affected communities, which in turn prompted the Serbian government to put its security forces on alert. NATO now says it will deploy another 700 peacekeepers to join the 3,800 it already has in Kosovo, and the Biden administration is taking steps to penalize the Kosovan government, excluding it, for example, from an upcoming NATO exercise, for having installed those mayors despite their obvious lack of any electoral mandate. In Spain, Prime Minister Pedro Sanchez has set a snap election for July 23rd in the wake of his Socialist Party's poor performance in local and regional elections on Sunday. In moving the vote up a few months, it was originally set for sometime in December, Sanchez seems to be hoping that public antipathy around the idea of a right-wing government will keep or help keep his left-of-center coalition in power. But polling strongly suggests that the right-wing People's Party and the far-right Vox Party could emerge from the vote in position to form a coalition government, assuming that the former is willing to enter coalition with the latter. In the Americas, in Brazil, Brazilian President Luiz Inácio Lula da Silva hosted a summit of South American leaders on Tuesday that was intended to advance prospects for regional economic integration and revitalize the moribund Union of South American Nations, or UNISUR. What appears to have happened instead is that disagreements over Venezuela and its president, Nicolás Maduro, highlighted regional political divisions. Lula had met with Maduro on Monday and offered his own support to the embattled leader, which apparently helped spark Tuesday's rancor. Even Chilean President Gabriel Boric, at least nominally an ideological ally of Lula's, criticized the Maduro meeting and Lula's comments. In Haiti, an organized vigilante movement that emerged in Port-au-Prince late last month and has killed at least 160 suspected criminals since then has reportedly caused a measurable decline in the level of gang activity across Haiti. A human rights NGO called uh, uh, CARDH, or I guess CARD, maybe, I don't know. Uh, But the human rights NGO CARDH says that kidnappings and gang-related murders are down significantly from early April. The vigilante movement known as Bois Calais began on April 24th when residents of the capital carried out a mass lynching involving 12 suspected gang members. Uh, And in the United States, finally, uh, from foreign policy, there's a a really compelling piece from reporter Anjan Sundaram uh, that highlights the troubling disparity in the way the media covers international conflicts. I'll read you just the opening uh, part of this essay. In 2013, when I traveled as a journalist through the Central African Republic during the country's civil war, I discovered massacres unknown even five kilometers from where they had been perpetrated. As it turned out, after killing hundreds of civilians suspected of aiding rebels in the country's west, soldiers had destroyed radio antennae uh, so the news couldn't get out. People fearing reprisals didn't dare speak about the killings. For months, these massacres went undocumented. 
Even as we receive round-the-clock news from the war in Ukraine, with dozens of international reporters rotating through the country, journalists are still unable to cover much of our world. The dead haven't been counted in the conflict in CAR. The war in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, the world's deadliest since World War II, makes the front pages of newspapers briefly only when violence explodes. In Latin America, hundreds of environmental activists have been killed while bravely defending precious forests, mountains, and rivers, and many of their deaths are just a footnote in the news. The reasons are timeless. A lack of interest in places deemed far away and in violence against people seen as unlike us. We don't grieve as much for some people as others. Another problem is that news from places such as CAR and Congo often needs to travel to London or New York before it reaches countries such as Nigeria and India. This means that much of the international or much of international news is filtered through a western lens or neglected altogether. A lack of international news outlets in the global south has led to great gaps in coverage even when millions of people die in the world's deadliest wars. Uh, on that note, uh, that uh, downer of a note, which uh, is sort of uh, stock and trade here, I guess. Uh, I want to thank all of you again for uh, sticking around and coming back after my uh, my little break there, and also for reading and or listening to the newsletter, especially those of you who are foreign exchanges subscribers and paid foreign exchanges subscribers above all. If you haven't made that jump, I know I say this all the time, but please do consider it. Uh, the newsletter needs your support to continue uh, and to grow. Uh, so any 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 new subscribers uh, are more than welcome. Uh, and until next time, take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye bye. <laughs>